This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm speaking with Professor Arthur Kaplan. Professor Arthur L. Kaplan is the Drs. William F. and Virginia Connolly Mitty Professor at the NYU School of Medicine in New York City. He is also the founding head of NYU's Division of Medical Ethics. He has published over 725 papers in peer-reviewed journals and authored or edited 35 books, including his most recent works, The Ethics of Sport, published by Oxford University Press in 2016 with Brendan Parent, and Vaccination Ethics and Policy, published by MIT Press in 2017 with Jason Schwartz. He has chaired the National Cancer Institute Biobanking Ethics Working Group, the Advisory Committee to the United Nations on Human Cloning, and the Advisory Committee to the Department of Health and Human Services on Blood Safety and Availability. Dr. Kaplan is currently the ethics advisor to the U.S. Department of Defense's Advanced Research Projects Agency on Synthetic Biology, and he also advises the Ethics and Ebola Working Group of the World Health Organization. In the context of the COVID-19 epidemic, which is posing some of the most urgent ethical questions of our time, Dr. Kaplan is advising the U.S. Conference of Mayors on Reopening Sports, Recreation, and Camps, and he is advising the World Health Organization on the compassionate use of novel drugs and vaccines. Hi, Art. Thank you for having me. I want to start by asking you a little bit about your background in bioethics and how you got to your interest in your thinking in bioethics. I've heard you talk a little bit about how you came to bioethics in, in that shift from medical school to getting your doctorate in philosophy. Do doctors and philosophers think about bioethics differently? And if so, what in your experience differs between how philosophers and maybe maybe humanists broadly think about bioethics and how medical professionals on the other side understand bioethics? Well, they do think differently. They come from different cultures, I would say. When I made the transition from medical school to a PhD in philosophy program, I definitely realized that I had left one type of community and gone to a very different type of community. The medical school is practice-oriented, pragmatic. It does not really love innovation. If you're a student, your idea is not to innovate, but to replicate and do things the way senior people think they ought to be done. You have nothing but deferral as a medical student to anybody who is a resident or a attending or in any way senior, and it's a little bit almost uh, like a military organization. And uh, by the way, my impression is still that way, just working around hospitals and medical schools for many decades since that time. Humanities, there are some cultural differences, but in general, innovation is something that people look for. Not too crazy, but, you know, building on the shoulders of giants, you should come up with something new or novel or perhaps a little different than what was said before. It's perfectly fine to critique your seniors, your mentors, people who've written. That is not something you do in medicine. (laughs) Why not as a medical student? You might do it later, but you wouldn't be doing that as a student. Your challenge as a med student to show mastery over many, many areas of knowledge. A final hurdle of 
showing mastery of some specialty areas in my area of philosophy. You had to take tests in history and logic and aesthetics and ethics to sort of move on to a PhD. But not every humanities degree does that. Um, demands a kind of uh, show me you know the canon of the field kind of thing. Within philosophy is very insular. It doesn't like to talk to other fields as a matter of culture. It tends to be talking to itself. It's snobby. It tends to think of itself as the smartest of the humanities, generally. It has a ahistorical and asocial view of what it's doing. So you might say philosophy, outside of feminist philosophy and some disability things that are more recent, but generally philosophy thinks of itself as one long conversation starting with Socrates and ending up with John Rawls, and they're all talking to one another without much attention to historical context or pressing public issues of the day. And it doesn't make much sense. I mean, you can't really understand John Stuart Mill, for example, without putting him in his social context. He's arguing about feminism and animal rights and liberty and empire and all the rest of it, but so be it. So how would I put it? To sum it up, Medicine hierarchical for students does not value innovation or breaking from tradition. You are to learn what works and be able to spit back that information and understand the foundations of it. Philosophy, as one of the humanities, likes to see criticism, puts you to the test of being able to defend your ideas against attack or criticism. But in that particular instance, it's a subpart of the humanities that is more insular. It isn't interdisciplinary. What I went on to do in bioethics is hyper-interdisciplinary, but not, not philosophy itself. Has your thinking about philosophy and some of the things that you describe, for example, the ahistorical dimension of philosophical thinking changed by your integration of medical ethics and, and your talking to and working with medical professionals? Not that much, really only about a thousand percent. Um, <laughs> completely, yes, because in medicine, you're interdisciplinary by need. So you need to be talking to the primary care person and the specialist and the anesthesiologist and the public health person and the nurse and then the person who's going to come in and do the technical administration of the ventilator and on and on. You're always with teams. You're always talking across fields. There are some diseases, obviously, where the pediatrician doesn't talk to anybody and just sort of makes a recommendation or a diagnosis. But in the hospital setting with really serious illness, cross-disciplinary by definition. Also, you can't help but notice things like people have to pay and people get different care depending on whether they're psychiatrically impaired minorities. Professionals get paid attention to as to whether they're women. There are all kinds of judgments being made about bringing this illness or disease on yourself. You smoked, you drank, you didn't wear a seatbelt, whatever. So my view of how to do philosophy is very much shaped by two things, to tell you the truth. One, the experience of being in medicine as a practical applied field. And so that makes me interested in humanities being practical and applied. Mm -hmm. And then to be frank, my philosophical heroes, Socrates, Plato, Mill, probably Ben Franklin a little bit as an American philosopher, and Peter Singer as a contemporary type philosopher, they're all interested in engaging the world, mm -hmm. problem solving of practical ethical issues. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it doesn't go well, as in the case of Socrates, they poisoned him and 
decided they heard enough of that. But generally, the people I was attracted to and the kind of work they did, I think, were the applied of. How has the field of medical ethics changed since you started working in it? And what kind of new bioethical issues should we be paying attention to? Hmm. Well, when I started, there wasn't any field. This was kind of odd. There were people interested. There were just emerging two think tanks, one called the Hastings Center, which was located north of New York City, about 15 miles on the Hudson River, and one called the Kennedy Institute, which was part of Georgetown University and actually part of its philosophy department. And uh, both were gathering spots for people from different areas, law, theology, nursing, medicine, humanities, to talk to each other about emerging issues at that time in bioethics, probably the big ones at that time, abortion, which has not gone away, but was more of an ethics issue at that time. Now it's a political one. People rarely argue the ethics of abortion, except maybe in a classroom, but out in the real world, they're just counting votes. Believe it or not, another big issue was rationing. We certainly hear about it again and again, but at that time, a new technology, dialysis, a machine to clean your blood if your kidneys fail was just coming in and people were arguing about who to give it to because they didn't have many machines. So that was a hot topic. Definition of death. People were very concerned with new machines that you might maintain a heartbeat and breathing in a body for a long period of time. And yet the person's brain had stopped. Was that dead? And so that issue, trying to understand what became known as brain death, was a big topic. And we were certainly interested in some things that may surprise listeners, which is, do you have to always tell the patient the truth, which wasn't being done at the time? <laughs> do you have to tell their diagnosis? Wasn't being done at the time. People, Some doctors argued that if the diagnosis was a terminal cancer, you didn't tell the patient because you'd scare them. So we do that. And confidentiality, who could know your information, who couldn't, who you could tell about someone's perhaps stigmatized information if they've been sexually assaulted or they were psychiatrically in need of mental health. That whole area about how to manage who could know things was very hot as well. So those were some of the issues of the day. But right Breaking out were fields like genetics, just starting to raise its head, genetic testing, things like testing people for sickle cell disease, large groups of people, or Tay-Sachs disease, how do you enter into a community, offer testing so that you could prevent people who were carriers of these diseases from getting married, how do you counsel them, again, privacy, who's paying, just rearing their heads. So today, genetics... There's a huge area of bioethics. We see genetic testing of embryos. We see genetic testing of fetuses. We see people arguing about what is a genetic disease. Is deafness a disease? Is uh, albinism uh, born without skin pigment? Is that a disease or just a difference? We see people trying to genetically engineer diseases called gene therapy. We see people talking about engineering human embryos to make better babies, a sort of return to eugenics. So that's a huge topic area that was just an infant when I got into this back in the late 70s. And other areas that have emerged, obviously public health, the pandemic, but even before that, 
there were plenty of people arguing about do we force people to take measles shots if they want to send their kids to school? Do they have to vaccinate the kids? There were plenty of public health issues that came out of swine flu and avian flu and cholera. And bioethics had become much more international. When I started, it was American. That's who was talking. Now, people participating from all over the world. We have a World Congress of Bioethics. Other small features that changed. We have journals, we have encyclopedias, we have professorships, we have newsletters, blogs. None of that existed when I started. We had two places that you could kind of go to for a meeting. So it started out as a interdisciplinary area defined more by problems than by methods or skills. And then has now become a full-blown field where probably if you don't have a master's degree, you're not going to be accepted. I have about a thousand questions right now. I want to follow just one train of thought. I wanted to ask you about brain death. You don't know this, but one of the ways that I became introduced to your work was a couple of comments you gave in a piece you wrote on the brain death of Jahai McNapp, a, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. a patient at Oakland Children's Hospital who was declared legally dead, legal death being a deduction of brain death, her family maintained that she was alive against all of the conclusions of the doctors. Now, I know about the case because I remember this was about 2013, and my my mother's hospital is Oakland Children's. She's an intensive care doctor in that unit. I remember the case very clearly, and I remember your remarks uh, in response to that case, I believe published in Time very clearly. Could you give us an understanding and, and maybe a brain death, how that definition came about and what the relationship is between brain death and what we might understand to be the self or the nature of the human? Sure. We'll only need about four hours, but we'll try. Standing on one foot. <laughs> Standing on one foot. The concept emerged because ventilators, kidney dialysis, and heart-lung machines began to appear. Someone could be kept on those machines long after it was assumed that the person was dead. Or to take a more grim example, somebody could suffer a severe brain injury. And you know that they're never going to be available for sentience or interactivity. Their brain was destroyed, but you could keep them on these new machines. So two issues were breaking. This is probably back again in the late 70s, early 80s. People arguing back and forth. When can we shut off these machines? Can we say death has come? And if it's defined as The traditional way, when the heart stops beating, well, a machine might be able to supplement that and maintain it, and you could be going on for months or years. That didn't seem plausible to many, and to some, but not the majority. And then the other argument that came up about brain death is, if you are starting to look to procure organs for transplant, you don't want to take them from someone who isn't dead, and you certainly don't want to kill the person, but it looks like there are many people who we know haven't had oxygen to their brains for long periods of time, their brains are destroyed. And if they can't think and they can't feel and their brains cannot run their heart or run their lungs, that is, act like a thermostat and control them, then in one sense, is the person alive if it's just machine life. Mm -hmm. So brain death came out of that two-pronged set of concerns. Basically, philosophers, lawyers, doctors met together in study groups. There was a famous one at Harvard, a little bit less famous one at the University of Minnesota. But groups were meeting and writing reports and saying, look, the irreversible loss of all brain function should be recognized as death. Hmm. Why? Because the definition of death is you've lost consciousness forever and 
your brain cannot maintain any bodily functions. The, if you will, the governorship of the brain is ceased. And so if the only way your body is doing anything is by outside artificial supplement, you're not alive, even if your heart is beating or your lungs are breathing or your kidneys excreting or your thyroid's making some sort of uh, glandular products. Your brain has nothing to do with it. You must be dead. And then gain traction. And so this actually comes in three parts. What is death? What's the definition that you're going to use to diagnose it? And then what tests would you use to determine that it's happened? The definition usually is total irreversible loss of all brain activities, the inability of the brain to coordinate, because that's what we mean when we say you've lost cardiac or you've suffered cardiac death. Your heart cannot be restarted and it can't support bodily functions. So you must be dead if you can't have a heart pumping blood, you can't survive. Similarly, if you don't have a brain that has organized electrical activity that can order your heart or your lungs to work, you're dead. Then, you, how do you determine this? Well, you have people come in and look for loss of reflexes. You try to administer pain stimuli. And most importantly, you take someone on a ventilator who's getting artificial breathing. You take the ventilator away and see if they can breathe without it. And if they can't over a prolonged period of time, then the brain is not working. So those might be uh, the criteria for deciding brain death. So to take us all the way up to your case, you have a family that is looking at this situation and says a few things. One, I'm not sure we believe that the total loss of brain function is death. What we believe is if you're still on machines and your body is still looking pink and there are some kinds of activities that are existing in that body, then we have hope that maybe the person will recover. And we don't accept the idea that loss of all brain function is death. Second, we hope for miracles. Mm -hmm. We have a religious view that maybe someone could be restored. I believe that happened to uh, Lazarus and Jesus, and maybe it will happen for my daughter. Mm -hmm. So there's a hope that somehow a recovery might happen. And then the other thing the family is saying in, the ca in this case is we don't trust the doctors because they made mistakes that caused my daughter to be in these dire straits. So we can't forget that this case arose because of a perception that when she went in for a tonsillectomy, errors were made and they resulted in her being at least, if not dead, then severely, severely injured. So no trust. This makes me want to ask you a question about how you really negotiate between ethical principles on the one hand, which appear as ideological oftentimes, as kind of set concepts in their full conceptual reality. And on the other hand, the fluidity of culture and the fluidity of dealing with real people with perhaps specific religious or cultural beliefs. And I want to ask you that question, maybe with this case in mind about the relationship between theory on the one hand and practice on the other. On the one hand, you as an expert in ethics and in philosophy and in medicine might come at a case with a recommendation based in and backed by theory and perhaps by scientific evidence. And on the other hand, you're responsible for helping real people, families and patients or patients themselves, and a public with a diverse set of values and beliefs make those ethical decisions, keeping in mind, of course, that Oftentimes, their idea of evidence is in their religious and cultural beliefs. How do you navigate between theory and reality in your, your, in your practice of applied bioethics? And can you, can you give us maybe another case, or, or you could talk about the case we just discussed, in which you had to do this and the issues involved and, and the outcome? Well, there are many cases where 
families, for a variety of reasons, do not want to accept a medical diagnosis of death or a medical statement that nothing more can be done, that they're going to stop treatments. They can come on differences of religious outlook. Sometimes Orthodox Jews will say, we don't accept death except if it's a stoppage of the heart, and that has to occur naturally, not by shutting off machines. Only God can decide when someone dies. In a sense, you have to die around the machine. And you could have simply a family where someone feels guilty that they didn't visit their mother very much and didn't have close contact, and they come in and you say, your mom is dying, and we can try to resuscitate her, but look, she's very old, and she has many complicated diseases, and she is not going to survive resuscitation. It's not useful, and it may hurt her. And the daughter may say, I don't care. We'll do it. Out of guilt or love or whatever motive, but not accepting the recommendation that it's pointless and maybe harmful, could hurt her. So mediating these kinds of things, they're both process things that I've learned to do over the years, and then there are some lines that have to be drawn over the years. The process things are these. It's very useful to get people by themselves to talk one-on-one. I'll give you an interesting case. I had a man, Jehovah's Witness, who did not want to accept blood transfusion. Jehovah's Witnesses like health care, but they don't like getting blood. An adult, competent person can refuse blood. And we had a guy who was refusing blood and it was in a bad car accident. We knew he was going to die and the doctors were certain they could save him and they just transfused him. And he had children, adult children actually, and they agreed that he should not get the blood and his wife agreed and his religious leader was there and he agreed. And so we had many conversations with all of them and they all agreed, no blood, over the course of a couple hours and we left the room and had decided, you know, we got to respect his wish. Then I thought, I don't know, I'm going to go back and ask him one more time. So I went in, there was nobody there but him. And I said, do you want blood? You sure? And he said, I want it. So he wouldn't say it in front of his wife and he wouldn't say it in front of his religious leader and he wouldn't say it in front of his kids. But his real view was that he did want the blood and he would, if you will not follow his religious conviction, he wasn't as orthodox as his family was. So I learned that private conversation is important. Also, you may have to cover up. He didn't want his wife to know that he got blood. He didn't want the kids to know that he got blood. He didn't want the religious leader to know that he got blood. So we never told him. Ironically, he's probably appeared in Jehovah's Witness pamphlets saying you don't need to have blood transfusions to survive. He became one of the cases which to the outside world looks like he lived without a blood transfusion. So... There were some interesting twists and turns on the process side. I did. I learned to get patients alone to make sure that they're not getting coerced or shamed or pressured in any way. But sometimes you have to lie for them in order to respect their wishes. Another example of that shorter would be someone who says, I'm going to donate bone marrow to someone at my synagogue or church. And then the time comes for them to do it, and they don't want to do it. They back out, and you have to tell a lie saying they're medically ineligible, which I've recommended because they have the right to change their mind, but they don't want to do it for fear of being embarrassed or humiliated in front of others. When you're up against medicine versus cultural differences, a few things become important. One is you have to lay out early what the limits of medicine are. No matter what your culture, no matter what your religion, you can't ask medicine to do what it can't do. 
or to do things it doesn't want to do, for that matter, that it finds kooky or crackpot or outside the realm of medicine. So for very sick people, I like going over when we're going to stop right at the start with patients. And so I say, this doesn't work, or they stop flourishing, or they don't respond. Here's what's going to happen. Ask me questions now about that. That sometimes cuts back on families thinking, oh, well, you're just letting him die because he's poor, or he's a minority, or I don't trust you. So if you get it up front, it helps. Even though there are cultural and religious views that also don't accept medical concepts, that's not how we practice medicine. So I am very comfortable saying to someone, look, your mom isn't going to survive much longer here. And we're going to take off the ventilator. That's what the docs recommend. However, if you are willing to pay to move your mom to a nursing home where they will keep her on a ventilator, at least before we got short on ventilators in the pandemic, or take her home and have home care, you could do that. But using hospital resources here in a futile effort to keep her going because her brain has died, we don't do that. So part of it is not worrying too much about is the religious view right or is the cultural view wrong? It's sort of like standing up for this is what the medicine ethic is, and then the family, you can encourage them or help them to work around that, but you don't let them capture it. I want to ask you a question about the origins of bioethics. There are two really important touchstones that capture and that provide the trajectory of 20th and 21st century medical ethics. And the first is the Tuskegee experiments, and the second are the Nazi experiments and, and the discoveries and protocols that emerge in Nuremberg. And I wanted to ask you about one of the most profound areas of your expertise, which is tracing how Nazi science shaped experimentation. I wonder if you could talk about this dimension of your research and how that moment shaped both the field of bioethics and your understanding of medical ethics. I got into medical ethics and I knew that there was a thing called the Nuremberg Code of Ethics that had been issued at the end of World War II. And we read that and studied that. And it said that it was the first principle of research ethics was get the consent of the subject. But I never got much more than that. We didn't talk much about Nazi crimes or euthanasia or anything. We just sort of started with this Nuremberg Code document, which, by the way, morphed a few years later into the first World Medical Association Helsinki Code of Ethics to govern research. Somewhere after, maybe after 10 or 15 years of doing bioethics, my dad, who hadn't said much about his World War II experience, we sat down and had some conversations about them. And I found that he had been in the troops that had liberated Dhaka. We talked about that, and he told me some horrible things he had seen, and I decided, gee, what was going on with these medical experiments, and what were people doing, and why did they do them in these camps and so on? So I resolved to go back and do some research on that, and it wound up being a book called When Medicine Went Mad, which is the first book about Nazi medical atrocities and the ethical arguments that they trigger. That didn't come out until 1989, which was a long time after I started in the field. There were no other books really like it at the time in Europe or here. And I realized a couple of things in going back and looking at the Nuremberg trials. I thought that the people who had done the experiments in the camps were kind of crazy people, just experimenting on Jews and gypsies and homosexuals because they could. And they tried crackpot ideas because they were crackpots. But what I found in looking at the trial transcripts was there certainly were 
Mengele's in the camps who did crackpot things. But if the military wanted an answer to an important military question, like how long can you live in freezing water, or how do you cure typhus, or what happens if you are in a plane and it decompresses at high altitude, they brought in first-rate scientists to do these experiments. And much of the information that they gathered was used by the German military. And in fact, some of it was used after the war by every military. Uh, the information on freezing was widely used by the Americans, the Russians, the Japanese, the British at the end of World War II for thinking about how to save anybody who fell into cold water and even was involved in redesigning life preservers. When you looked at the reputation of the people who were doing these military-funded, and I'm going to call them high-priority science experiments, and you realize that the Germans often were so fanatical about this that they sometimes even used racial selection to pick out the subjects. They didn't want just Jews or gypsies. They wanted Aryan-type people, so they'd look for some of the experiments where they really cared about the results for Dutch doctors or political dissidents or religious objectors, that kind of group, which they thought were racially more similar, that they could get better data inferences from. Not always, but sometimes. These guys did the experiments and then went home and had dinner. They were university professors, experts, head of the Koch Institute of Tropical Medicine. And I began to see their arguments in the trial transcripts and realized that they had convinced themselves that what they were, were doing was right. Terrible question. Are there really ethical arguments for this kind of barbaric experimentation? And what's the point of bioethics if you can justify anything with an ethics argument, right? So what did they say? They said things like this. The prisoners that we studied and put into freezing experiments where we killed many of them, they were going to die anyway because they were going to get executed. So what's the difference? They said sacrificing a few prisoners is worth it if you learn how to cure a disease like typhus or typhoid, which kills hundreds of thousands of our troops, and it's going to cause us to lose the war against the Russians if we don't get a cure. They said, and when you're at war, there are no rules. They said, if you're a prisoner, you have no rights. And they had other arguments as well, but these jumped out, and they realized that the thing I had studied, that Nuremberg Code, and that first principle, the consent of the subject is absolutely necessary, was the response to the German ethics arguments. It didn't come out of an American obsession with autonomy or some kind of judge who thought that consent was very important, they were responding to the ethics arguments that the German scientists and their lawyers made at the trial. Even if you're dying, doomed to die, you still have the right to give your permission. Even if you're a prisoner, you have the right to consent to an experiment. Even if we can learn a lot by sacrificing a small number of people who can't do it, we have to get their consent to be in an experiment. Even if it's war, you still have to get permission from people to put them in experiments. So that both made me happy, but it made me sad for another reason. Happy because now I started to understand the emergence in talking about personal autonomy and respect for the individual of that framework that you were talking about is driving 20th century and even into the 21st century medical ethics. It's very individualistically autonomy driven, but it's because of history. It's not because of culture. And it made me sad because I realized despite all this wonderful code of ethics, the United States had paid no attention, and most other countries did not for the next two decades, three decades, actually. We ran the Tuskegee experiment involving lying to poor black men that they were getting treatment when they weren't. There was a treatment available for their venereal disease, syphilis, 
and allowing them to infect other people and to die long after the concentration camp experiments. So I've long held the view that bioethics does not begin in the camps. It does not begin with the Nazis. Some of its key documents do, but the practice, modern bioethics as we know it, really comes out of the Tuskegee study in 1972. That's how recent it was. From 1947 to 19, if you will, 72, we break the rules that we've apparently set up but then chose to ignore about how to do research. So that's a long answer to a question, but medical ethics evolved on two fronts. One, therapy. Who's dead? Who gets the dialysis? Do you get to be told the truth? What's privacy? And that was moving along. Research ethics should have started with the Nazi experiments. It didn't. It was Tuskegee and the terrible things done there that really triggered the research ethics part of bioethics much later. My mind is exploding with questions right now. One is, what do we mean by that term informed consent? How can we be sure that somebody has informed consent? And then the second question that I think is really pressing in my mind right now, based on your response, is that there seems to be two important axioms that we should evoke from this. The first is that autonomy and consent is absolutely inviolate. And the second disturbing point that, that this brings up is that oftentimes scientific progress can be framed or seen as such a paramount virtue that those who believe in it can justify any form of progress as the good or in service of the good, even if it causes tremendous amounts of suffering and pain. What should we learn from this? Are these two things in tension with one another in scientific progress and ethics? And what does it tell us about the relationship between science and how we might be more cautious about the idea of science and, t and technology is bettering human lives. Yeah, well, those are great questions. I'll answer the second one, the notion of can we still get so caught up in our research that we lose the obligation to protect the subjects? Yes, that has happened subsequently after Tuskegee. The protections that we put in in research ethics have made it rare, but it has happened. And people get so committed to their research that they lose sight of what is going on. That means that the scientist is not the last word on whether something is worth doing. We also have research ethics committees that have to sign off independently from what the researcher would like to do. And I think that is appropriate. Sometimes the researchers get mad about that, but uh, I think it's the right model. And in listening even to justifications for why we should spend money on something, we want to make sure that we get lots of voices into that dialogue, not just the person as expert as they might be who says that it is worth doing it. Autonomy is, I wouldn't say inviolate, because there are some groups that can't do it, mentally ill children in some emergency situations. You come in the emergency room, we don't know who you are. You have a head injury. We want to do something experimental. We never could fix you before, but there's no one to get permission. We've set up some exemptions to autonomy to let you try something. Let's say you swallowed a poison or something that we don't have a proven antidote, but we get an experimental one. I think most people would say, try it. They wouldn't say, well, if no one can consent, don't do it. So, it's probably 96% inviolate, but not 100. Mm -hmm. But it nonetheless is hugely important. We can't forget it. The difficulty becomes on your other 
the question that you asked, how do we know when informed consent is real? And that's difficult. Many people are afraid when they go to the hospital and will do whatever the doctor says. The most common phrase when I'm around in hospitals is, I don't know, doc, what do you think? What would you do? It's not, oh, let me exercise my autonomy. <laughs> I'll think about this for a while and I'll let you know. You hear it, but that's pretty rare. So you have to teach your doctors and researchers to empower subjects, to ask questions, to say what they might be thinking, even if it sounds stupid to them or pointless or something. Still, they should feel comfortable asking things. They, too, need to be able to get some time to think about things. We occasionally get someone asking for permission to do a research study as you're wheeling somebody in to the surgical theater to get a procedure. That's not the time to do it. It should be happening a little bit earlier than that, not on the gurney when you're being moved. There certainly are issues about culture and language. Some cultures are just going to defer to authority. Some groups are going to say, I don't give consent. My religious leader gives the consent. Or my tribal leader gives the consent. And you have to decide how you're going to work around that. There are also many people who are not very literate. And so you're showing them 18-page consent forms. We can't follow those. Not that most of us could, but they're struggling. You may need to go to pictures, cartoons, videos, other modes of communication. We often need savvy interpreters to make sure that information is getting across. So I do believe in informed consent, and I do believe in patient choice, and I know firsthand it is really tough to achieve it. Very, very hard. So there's a the theory and there's the practice. Yeah. A separate issue that I think is related to informed consent, and that, that is the question of medical ethics in the context of what we would consider to be non-human animals. You cited a number of Stoics, and then you cited Peter Singer as one of your influences, and you put about moral equality and moral worth in medical ethics, particularly in the, in the case of ethical consideration of those who we consider to be non-human animals. And I think that one of the important things you get at in thinking about moral equality in this context is the way in which moral considerations about equality in the non-human animal world are connected to questions and indeed are connected to the problematic history of moral equality in the non-human world. We just, we just talked about a case that I think is contingent upon that concern. What is moral equality and why should we be concerned with moral obligations in the non-human world? How are these moral questions intertwined with questions about moral equality for human animals? Yeah, well, they're deeply intertwined because first, we use a lot of animals in experiments mm -hmm. and you have to justify that because it's clear that animals, whatever else they can do, can suffer. And that suffering has to be justified. We obviously spend a fair amount of our days, many of us eating them, and that means factory farming them or, or putting them in situations where, again, they suffer a lot. There are proposals right now to begin to think about using some animals, pigs, as sources of organs for transplant because we don't have enough human organs. That means killing them and taking out their hearts or their livers or cells and putting them into us so that we might live, but they won't. And obviously, a new issue that bioethics has just started wrestling with is climate change. Okay environmental degradation and what that means for health. Eating animals, farming them the way we do is a big drag on the environment. Lots of the waste, effluent in rivers, fertilizers, methane. It's just degrading public health frequently to have large-scale meat eating, for example. So as someone who still eats meat, unlike Peter Singer, but hopefully less, and tries to move away from that practice, because I think it's very hard to morally justify, I think you have to decide a couple of factors. One, are animals equivalent to us? Peter Singer tends to say yes, I tend to say no. 
Mm-hmm. I think they have moral standing, but I don't think they're equivalent to humans. Peter and I have argued about this forever, although we're friends, <laughs> we argue about it a lot. His standard is suffering. My standard is not just suffering, but it's also who's suffering. And what I mean by that is, I think moral standing is conferred not just by the properties that an animal or a human have. Can they suffer? There may be humans who can't suffer, maybe a fetus, not sure we should eat them, or farm them, or use them as jewelry. And that's because the people who create them, or who parent them, or who socially interact with them, they have standing too. So I'm more interested in protecting a child who can't suffer from being in an experiment because of parents, or friends, or the impact on other moral agents than I am worrying about a rat where I don't think the rest of the rat population or the rat's parents care one way or the other about a rat being in an experiment. All that said, I'm the person who created the animal care and use committees in this country, which are there to reduce the use of animals, reduce suffering, make sure you don't use animals unless you have no other choice, because I think Singer was right in the sense in which perhaps animals are not our moral equivalents. We are morally responsible and have moral agency. Animals, unless you get to dolphins and maybe the high primates, don't. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean you can do whatever you want to them, and it doesn't mean that you are justified in causing suffering to them. Mm-hmm. So I've tried to do my best to try and advance animal welfare, where I would say Peter is more on the side of animal rights. You have an essay titled, If I Were a Rich Man, Could I Buy a Pancreas? And in that essay, you you talk about the principle of fairness in organ transplantation and access to life-saving measures more broadly. How do you define fairness in this context, and what are some of the critical decision-making factors involved in deciding who receives life-saving measures when the need exceeds the supply of resources required to provide those life-saving measures? You know, timely because this came up in the pandemic mm-hmm. with ventilators. Mm-hmm. Who was going to get them if we didn't have enough? And most places that I know of did not have to ration. I got close. Some places got pretty darn close. And I helped make up some policies about giving out ventilators, which were based on my thinking over the years about transplants. So many, many years ago, when the transplant was kind of in its adolescence, not its infancy, but adolescence, people transplanted organs at institutions, and they tended to set up their own networks for getting those organs. And believe it or not, if they got a liver and they didn't have a liver patient, they didn't share the liver. They threw it away. Tremendously stupid and unethical. Al Gore, when he was a congressman way back in the early 80s, was alert to this problem. I'm not sure how. He also knew that rich people were coming to the U.S. from overseas and getting transplants when poor people could not. So he reached out to me as I've been writing on this and some others, and we formulated a plan to set up rules to distribute organs. So there actually is a set of rules that Congress agreed to and have been in place for almost 40 years, and they've gotten wide public support. And the rules go like this. You have a scarce resource, First, try to get rid of the scarcity. So your first obligation is to try and get more of the resource. That's why you constantly see us asking for people to donate organs, trying to avoid scarcity. And similarly, that's why people in hospitals were begging to get sent more ventilators. They didn't want to ration them. They wanted to have enough of them. So you always need to begin by asking, can I get more of the resource or can I stretch the resource? Sometimes, even with livers, you can cut them in half and give two. 
transplants out of one donated liver, which is quite common, but it's done. Ventilators sometimes can be shared, so there you want to try those tricks. But assuming you're stuck and you just don't have enough hearts or kidneys or livers, then you want to try and save the most lives with the resources you've got. I think that's what people expect in rationing situations. They don't expect you just to flip a coin or do a lottery. If you're on a lifeboat and somebody is dying and you know they're dying, you're not going to give your scarce food to that person who's going to die. You're going to try and save the most people you could. And you might say, we're also going to try and save the most people we can with some eye toward age. If on the lifeboat there's a 12-year-old and an 89-year-old and they're both healthy, I'm going to argue for the 12-year-old both in terms of more likely to survive with food and then survive longer with food. And that's called the fair innings argument, getting an opportunity to enjoy more life. So if you buy those kinds of arguments that the game involves trying to save the most lives in the most life years, then you start to look to biology. In the case of the ventilator, if you're really sick and you have four underlying diseases, you're not, and one of them's a lung disease, you're not a great candidate to get a ventilator if there's someone else who doesn't have that, but is the same age and relatively same need, then you're probably going to go, whether one of them is the governor and one of them is just the person who cleans rooms at the hospital, you're still going to go to the one who cleans the rooms if they physiologically have a much better chance to survive. Same thing with transplants. If someone has diabetes and obesity and hypertension, those are not good for surviving a transplant. The odds start to drop fast. So if you had someone else who doesn't, you're going to pick them. So I think you can make decisions. There are controversial aspects of this because some people might say, well, wait a minute. What if you tried to kill yourself? Do you still get an organ? Literally, you poisoned yourself, took a bottle of pills, and you destroyed your liver. Should you stand equally now with someone whose liver failed just because they had a genetic disease? Those are hard. And my argument has been we try to treat them equally because we're just watching the outcomes, mm-hmm. not the causes. But not everybody agrees. And there are countries, certainly, where smokers and alcoholics get lower priority. Many people believe that prisoners shouldn't even be considered because they have lost their right to claim a public resource. There are some people who argue that children below a certain intellectual IQ should lose out to other kids who can do more when there's a crunch on transplants. So there's still fights and plenty of them. You mentioned the critical nature of this discourse right now in the COVID-19 moment with regard to ventilators and that access or lack of access to life-saving resources, medical care and treatments have in the past been critically linked to social inequality, such as, as you mentioned, rich people coming over to the United States to get organs, and as well as inequalities that might be built into pre-existing policies. How are biomedical practices and outcomes linked to social and legislative decisions? In other words, is bioethics and medical ethics related to and contingent on broader social systems in the way that they function? And how do you approach these systematic issues from your position as a bioethicist? Well, they are absolutely related. Look, a big problem for bioethics is in the American context, not everybody has access to healthcare. They don't have insurance or they don't live in a place that has healthcare resources. And you can't ignore that. You have to try and Talk about why that is. There are plenty of people who are homeless, who are neglected by the healthcare system. There are plenty of people I know who have disabilities who feel that they are discriminated against, whether they're intellectual impairments or even physical 
impairments that may make it harder for them. Say, if you're thinking about a ventilator and someone comes in and they have uh, ALS, are they going to stand equally with someone who doesn't? By the way, I'll answer that. If it's end-stage ALS, no, it's going to die soon. And I don't really care whether it's terminal cancer or ALS. There's, again, I want my resource to go to the person with the better odds. But if it's new, newly diagnosed ALS and they're going to live 20 years, even if it's in a wheelchair with a computer-assisted communication device, then I think they should be considered. I'm not trying to discriminate based upon some notion of quality of life. So bioethics is stuck right in the middle of fights about meaning of disability, meaning of social justice, maybe historical use of racism to deny good care to people because of their skin color, which has been a problem in the American healthcare system. So yes, we are absolutely <laughs> embedded in the social realities, and we should be. You're really getting at the interdisciplinary, multidisciplinary nature of what you do. I wanted to ask a question on the humanities side. A lot of people in humanities are talking about post-humanism, which is a discourse intended to and interested in, among other things, the increasing ways in which we think about the nature of the human and what we think of as technology as increasingly fused. It's an exciting conversation. Is my mind mine biologically when so much of my memory is stored on my phone? Is my perception mine when it's filtered starting the first thing when I wake up through my contact lenses? Am I myself after I've had a heart transplant from another body? Are medical devices and techniques and technologies in a broader sense changing what it means to be human? And are these scientific and technological advancements changes in extent or fundamentally different in kind? Well, so far, I would argue they are changing our notion of personal identity. They're changing our notion of who we are, but they're degree-based so far, not kind. Mm -hmm. I haven't quite gotten to the point where I've made a change because I wear glasses or use eye drops or take an asthma inhaler or have an artificial knee where I can say, I don't recognize me anymore. Mm -hmm. The philosopher who used to write about this, the most Derek Parfit, who passed away not too long ago, tried to understand personal identity by sort of continuity of recognition of self over time, long periods of time. I can still, I think, identify with the little boy that I once was, although it's getting hazier, but it is part of my identity to the point where I don't think now as an adult, I'm a different human being, self or person from the one I was at age six. But if I added capacities and abilities that made me radically different, I had, uh, you know, x-ray vision, and I could see for 2,000 miles, and I could remember in great detail every single thing that happened in the past hour, I think you can jump the shark there and start to become a different entity. Do I think that will happen to us? Yes. Do I think it's going to happen to us soon? No. <laughs> but it will happen. I mean, we will get the machine-mind merger that will sort of threaten our understanding of who we are as a species, as who we are as homo sapiens. And that's, I think, both inevitable, challenging, interesting, and scary. A couple of last questions. I wanted to ask you specifically to talk about this moment that we're in right now. In 1992, you were already talking about medical ethics and privacy. And right now in 2020, the COVID-19 virus threatens exponential growth of infections, technologies that offer contact tracing, and the demand to know whether one might be at risk as some thinkers, industries, and com companies lobbying or sacrificing things we 
would typically maintain ought to be private, such as medical records and geographical location, etc. Those things are on the rise. Those technologies are there. What should we be thinking about in terms of the competing values of privacy on the one hand and safety on the other? What are you concerned about ethically with technologies or policies that enable increased transparency into these things that are vitally medically private? Yeah. Well, in an era of plague, you're going to see desperate efforts to trace disease, see who's been vaccinated when we get a vaccine, restrict the liberties of those who might be heavy shedders of virus and pose huge risks to others. I think public health, in my view, justifies getting that information and using it in a way that's limited, meaning you know you don't have to share it more than we do now when we're tracing HIV or other sexually transmitted diseases. We contact trace there, but we don't put your name in the newspaper. We just have a group of people sworn to privacy who go out and try to warn others that they may have been exposed to HIV or other sexually transmitted diseases. So I think we have a prior system in place that tells us a little bit about how to do it. That said, I'll date both you and me. I think if you're under 20, your belief in privacy is pretty weak. You know that between leaks and hacks and people posting personal information Mm -hmm. and what your cell phone tracks and what your meal delivery service tracks and what your credit card company knows and on and on, privacy has almost disappeared. I think it's, ironically, the fight about privacy and protecting it is almost the last generation's fight. I think it's going to go away in the long run. I think people will take the benefits and just be miserable knowing that Facebook and their bank and the CDC all know a lot about them. And it's worse, if you will, in China and many other countries where they're already taking the photo and cameras are everywhere and they know exactly where you've been. If privacy isn't dead, it's pretty sick. Do you think we're betting on the right horse in choosing safety over privacy in the long term? I don't think we have any choice because I think privacy is evaporating. I'm talking to you at a moment that's particularly fraught with medical ethics as we navigate this crisis. What are the ethical issues that are keeping you up at night? I worry about where we're going to go with vaccines. I worry that they're the way to get out of this epidemic. But a lot of people are nervous about vaccines. There's a lot of false fear being spread by anti-vaccine folks, and the president and the people saying, we're going to go fast and we're going to speed it up and it's going to be at warp speed. That makes people justifiably nervous. Are we cutting corners? Is this thing going to be safe? I worry, how are we going to distribute it? You know, even if you got a vaccine quickly, you still have to manufacture, let's say, 300 million doses for the U.S. or some number of billions for the world. Mm. Let's say it was a vaccine that required two shots, not one. They need two. That's a huge technical challenge that will take many years to roll out. So some people will have vaccines and some won't. Who will they be? The rich, black market, the countries that make them and so keep them. Will anything ever get to a refugee camp for Syrian refugees or a war zone place like Afghanistan or Somalia? Will they just continue to be breeding grounds for the pandemic with the virus coming back at us again and again? Remember, no vaccine is 100% effective. Most of them hover around 85%. You don't get a lot of compliance. You're just going to have the virus around with infecting a lot of people, even if you have a vaccine. That's a big worry for me. I think vaccines are really important, but we're not preparing to use them and discussing who's going to get them 
yet, and I think we should be. Last question. I have a lot of students in the humanities and many students in the sciences who have let me know that they are taking this class in ethical technology with the ambition of going into the medical and healthcare fields. What principles, ideas, and theories do you think that they should know before they do? I think to enter in and be a real contributor as a doctor, nurse, social worker, respiratory therapist, public health official, whatever, know your science and know your science well. You do need to master it so you can assess claims by others, read the literature, be critical, not accept someone who says, I own 50,000 shares of stock and I'm telling you this drug is great, be able to look at the paper and say, that looked that great to me, we didn't really do a big enough study or the results aren't all that impressive. Second, learn good communication skills, communicating with your patient, communicating to the public, communicating to public officials. I'd say in this pandemic, we're seeing weakness in the part of science and medicine. We don't have many great communicators. The few that we have are heroes, but there are too few. And that hurts the ability to bring that perspective. Lastly, you know, medicine, public health, the health fields, to me, they're quasi-humanities fields anyway. I mean, they have the science element, but we're still trying to achieve values, whether it's public health goods, protect privacy, come to an agreement on what is health, work with patients to balance health against other values. You know, let's face it, health may be important to doctors, but it's not something that every person wakes up thinking, the first thing I'm going to do today is try to be healthy. They may wake up saying the first thing I'm going to do is have fun, or the first thing I'm going to do is get drunk, or the first thing I'm going to do is go gambling, or you know, play sports, climb mountains, do risky things, whatever. Those are humanities questions. What makes for good life? What makes for boundaries of what you can and can't do with people? How do you sort of try to shape politics? How do you try to make a just society so that access is there? You want those skill sets too. So I don't see them as two cultures. I just see them as the humanities as a part of what you need to train in so that you have the supplemental skills to try and capture, if you will, the scope of what health and disease are all about. Thank you, Art. Thank you so much for having me.